Thank you so much for joining us today and listening to a PCF podcast. We believe listening to the Word of God will change your life. God bless you as you continue listening to this podcast. Thanks very much. I remember being asked to speak at this church once. This guy came up to me before I got up and he said to me, do you know what a good sermon is? So I thought, oh, I, right. He said, a good sermon has a good beginning, has a really good ending, and as close together as possible. <laughs> so I thought, that's great. It's a good start. But I love this pastor who announced to his congregation that he has three sermons. Um, he has a a thousand pound sermon, uh, sorry, a hundred pound sermon that lasts an hour. He has a 500 pound sermon that lasts half an hour. And he has a thousand pound sermon that lasts five minutes. So we will now take the offering and see where we're going with the sermon. <laughs> I want you to listen to this music. Wow. It came out in 1976. Made number six in the charts. Do you remember it, everyone? Yeah? It's called, the reason why I've put it on is because it's called The Things We Do for Love. And that's the title of my message today. The Things We Do for Love. We are into our current series of Live to Love. It was kicked off a few weeks ago by Pastor Claire and then Pastor Wayne and then Pastor Andrew were both kind of like added to it uh, about agape love. And I want to start this message by saying that don't we do some very unusual things when we are first in love? When I was first married, <laughs> sorry, I'm embarrassed telling you this really, but I'm glad Sue's not here, that's a fact. When I was first married, it was back in the late 70s, and it was my wife's birthday, so it was our first birthday together as a married couple. So I thought I would kind of like break the bank and go and get her something really, really special. So I bought her something, and she was not happy. She was not happy at all. I mean, guys, uh, ladies, what is wrong with a top-of-the-range electric carving knife? I, I, it was advertised on TV. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I won't tell you what she told me to do with it. <laughs> but the things that we do for love. I was looking this up actually the other day about things people do for love. In, back in 1632, the, the Mughal emperor, Shah Jahan, he built a place called the Taj Mahal in Accra in India. 
out of love for his third wife, Mumtaz Mahal, who actually died in childbirth. That building went on to become the most famous buildings in the world. And then there's a kind of uh, generous love. I read about this lady called Vanessa Mendez, who actually gave her kid- one of her kidneys to her sick husband. And she said these words, which I thought were really lovely. I gave him my heart a long time ago. So what's a kidney? (laughs) And then there's a kind of sacrificial love. I read about the British King Edward VIII, who gave up his throne because he loved an American divorcee called Wallace Simpson. And the government did not want them to get married. So he gave up his throne for love. Then there's a, a weird kind of love. You won't know about this guy. This guy's called Lotham Baba, and he's from India. And he accomplished something which can only be described as bizarre. Over a period of eight months in 1994, Mr. Baba rolled his body 2,486 miles, 973 feet, yards from the city of Ratlam to the city of Jammu in India, which is on the Pakistani border. He averaged 7 to 13 miles every day. It is said that he did not eat while he was rolling, but he did say he smoked the odd cigarette. (laughs) And upon finally reaching his destination, which was his future bride's home, he stopped his blistered and callous body finally stopped. And this guy went up and asked him, what did you do all that for? It was all for love. Weird. (laughs) And then there's a kind of confused love. I read about this couple, married couple, husband and wife, who'd been married for many, many years. And when they were first, uh, sorry, and they were having dinner one night, and his wife said these words, When we were first married, she said, you took the small piece of meat and gave me the large piece of meat. You don't do that anymore. Don't you love me? The husband quickly replied, nonsense, darling. Of course I love you just as much, if not even more, than I did back then. And the reason why I now take the larger piece of meat It's not because I love you less, no. It's because now you are a better cook. (laughs) Love can mean many things. We live in a generation, friends, we live in a generation that talks a lot about love, but knows less about love than any generation, I think, since the time of Christ. And it's amazing how this word love has been twisted today. People just don't understand what love is. Let me tell you, according to Amazon, there are 32,507 books currently in print with the word love in the title. There are 145,000 books currently in print that deal with the subject of love. There are 11,000 popular CDs and albums and other forms of music with love in the title. 
And listen to this. There are at least 121 million websites that use the word love as one of its key words. So you can see from all that, that love to us is an important subject. The thing is that the one word that we use, love, can get very complicated and tricky and can come up a bit short at times. Why? Because this one word can carry a multitude of different emotions and meanings. Yet the same word love in the English language is the same word that says, I love sprouts and I love my wife Sue. The difference is absolutely massive. Here's an interesting fact for you. Did you know that the Eskimos have, only, have, have 40 different words for the word snow? So you can see that our meaning of love can at times fall a bit short. Now, it wasn't so hard for the ancient Greeks. It wasn't as tricky. Because if they wanted to express love in a passionate, sensual manner, excuse me, they would use the word eros love. If they were speaking of a friendship type of love, they would use the word filial love. If they were talking about love among family members or love that shows loyalty, they would talk about storge love. And if they wanted to talk about the love of God, well, a divine love, a sacrificial love, an unconditional love, then they would talk about agape love. Today I want to talk to you about one small aspect of agape love. One unique aspect in a large tapestry that God weaves in our lives. And I'm going to put the passage, I want to read from Matthew chapter 5. And it says this, verse 38. You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him in who is evil. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away for him who wants to borrow from you. This section of scripture is taken from a much larger sermon that Jesus was giving in the hills overlooking the Sea of Galilee. The exact location is unknown, but tradition names the location as a large hill known as Khan Hattin, which is just near Capernaum. The sermon became known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's A.D. 28, and Jesus is in his Galilean ministry. And in this sermon, Jesus teaches us about the major ideals uh, of Christian life, it teaches on subjects such as prayer, such as justice, such as care for the needy. So he talks about uh, handling the religious laws, about divorce, about fasting, about judging others, 
and about salvation. And, and of course, there's much, much more. However, I want to just look at one line from that sermon, one line from my scripture reading today. And it says this, verse 41. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Here, our Lord is instructing us to go two miles if someone forces you to go one. So what do these words really mean? What are they actually telling us today? Well, at the time that Jesus spoke these words, the Jewish nation was under the iron yoke of Roman law. His mention of being compelled, being forced to go one mile, brought a very distasteful and hateful picture to the Hebrew mind. Under full sanction of Roman law, a Roman soldier could compel, he could force any person to carry his pack for, for him for one mile. That was the law. And a mile in them days was round about a thousand steps. And I suspect that this law was originally made uh, for use in combat zones when a fighting soldier which was desperate for rest might call upon a subject of Rome for assistance. Much like today when a police officer might commandeer a, a car from, from a person who is maybe chasing a criminal. I've seen that in the movies, so I know it's true. <laughs> the Jews, they hated this law. They hated it. And so when they were forced to obey, they did so with bitterness and obvious resentment. The word force that Jesus uses here in this, in this scripture has a long history of tyranny behind it. The word originates in Persia, hundreds of years before this time when Jesus is talking to the people. The noun form of the word is angaros. And in ancient Greece, the, uh, sorry, ancient Persia, the angaros was a man appointed by the king as a sort of revol, rev, uh, roving reporter. And as the angaros uh, was traveling throughout the, the kingdom, throughout the realm, throughout the country, if he had a message for the king, he could, by law, grab the nearest person he saw and force him to run the message back to the palace, back to the king. The Persians, they learned to hate the Angaros for his abuse of this right. So by the time of Christ, this word had come to mean to, com to, to compel one to go on a journey, to bear a burden, to go and perform a service. Now, the services that brought Jesus' attention to this principle, the principle of the second mile, it's no longer with us. But I believe, I believe that the principle behind it lives on even today. In these words of our text, Jesus, in a sense, he divides life into two familiar parts. The compulsory, the first mile, 
These are the obligations, the ordinary things, things that we must do. And then there's the voluntary, the second mile. These are seen as opportunities, things that exceed that which is normal, things that go beyond the call of duty, things that we choose to do. Now, life, friends, is full of first-mile requirements, things that we are compelled to do, things that we must do. These are our obligations and our responsibilities in our day-to-day lives. And doing these fulfills our first-mile commitments. But being human, our tendency is to resist. Yes, we comply, but we do so grudgingly. In the end, the way we greet these obligations will determine, friends, will determine whether we are only first-milers or whether we have learned the secret of the second mile. Now, one of the main commitments of the first mile is the commitment for work. We will always, friends, have to work. Probably until the day that we retire or the day that we die. But the thing is, behind everything worthwhile in our lives is also work. The problem is that work to many people today is a bit of a funny word. But work, friends, is a necessity. You see, in our society, there are no free lunches. And it has been that way from the beginning of time. In Genesis 2, verse 15, we read these. Then the Lord God said to man, and put him into the, and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. He had to work the garden. It tells us there. Friends, work is and always has been a part of God's plan for all of us. So we can face this first mile compulsion of work in either two ways. We can bear the load for one mile, grudgingly griping and complaining all the way, dragging our feet and hating every minute of it, or we can do what Jesus teaches us here to do. Volunteer for the second mile. What? Are you crazy, man? You've no idea how miserable and how awful my job is. I'm not going to volunteer for anything, let alone another mile. It's very true. I don't know how bad or how miserable or how heavy your job might be today. But I do know how miserable it was for these People to be forced, friends, to be forced by a hated Roman soldier to carry his pack. I also know that was in the face of this very disagreeable situation that Jesus gave this incredible second mile teaching. He took here a secular law of the time and drafted a new divine law a law which he called the law of love. So the second mile worker, friends, he knows a secret 
that the first miler doesn't understand. He knows that if he accepts the compulsory first mile and then volunteers for the second mile, he's no longer a slave. He is in charge. I want to explain to this in a story I read. It'll probably explain it a bit better. I read this story about this Bible student. who met a second-mile worker. He got this job in a farm uh, machinery factory, right? Uh, and he got this job while he was attending the next door, the Bible college next door. He enjoyed the job, but occasionally he would get the call that everybody dreaded. It came over the tannoy system and it said that would everyone show up at the bottom end of the factory, down by the railway lines, where they were to unload dozen or so wagons of large tyre casings. Everybody hated the job. They dreaded the job. They were dirty. They were heavy. In the summer, they smelt like swamp water. They, they, they were green and they were slimy. And in winter, they were usually frozen together and had to be pried apart. Now, when the call came over the tannoy system, the men would do a runner. Others would wander down as slowly as they could walk, dreading their lot in life. But there was this one guy amongst them who was very different. He was also one of the Bible students. And he was always the first to arrive at the dreaded site. He would then unload like an absolute madman. In fact, if he was on the actual train itself, it took two or three men just to keep up with him. The point is that this guy actually seemed happy to unload these horrible tyre casings. And though most of the workers thought he was absolutely round the twist, mad, they had to all admit that his attitude was contagious. So this lad asked him about his strange attitude towards such a dreadful job. And he said that he used to dread the job too. Until one day, he connected it to this passage of scripture in the Bible. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. And from that day, his attitude changed. He began to enjoy his work. And he could actually see some purpose in it. And you know what? It served him well because he became the best known Christian in the factory. So this new lad decided to try and attempt to adopt this attitude, as did several of the other Bible students who worked there as well. And as strange as it sounds, they began to discover that time began to fly past. They started to enjoy the job. And the best part was that the Bible students gained such a good reputation as good workers that if others from the Bible college came looking for a job, they were hired on the spot. And you know what? As I read that story, it reminded me of Paul's teachings in Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ 
whom you serve. To these men, it was no longer a dead-end job. To these men, they were doing it out of love. Out of a gappy love. They were serving Christ. They were going that second mile. They were going beyond the call of duty. And today, are you available to go that second mile? Please don't be a first miler. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were first milers, careful to fulfill the law and the traditions, but no more. They prayed three times a day, but no more. They gave a 10% tithe, but no more. They, gave, they, they grudgingly went the first mile, but no more. They did just enough to justify their position, but no more. They just went so far in their ministry, but no more. Are you available? Please don't be a first miler. Jesus took a look at these first milers and he said that unless our righteousness exceeds theirs, we shouldn't figure on being part of his kingdom. He tells us that in Matthew chapter 5. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, Christians should be more willing to serve than God is to demand. I'm going to say that again. Christians should be more willing to serve than God is to demand. You see, Christianity is a second mile religion. Sorry, Christianity is a second mile faith. Christianity is a second mile experience. And Jesus requires us, friends, to live in that second mile. I'm asking you this morning, are you committed to living in that second mile? I'll tell you, to love our neighbour is a first mile principle. To love our enemy is living in the second mile. To bless those who bless you is a first mile principle. To bless those that curse you is living in the second mile. To do good to those who do good to you is a first mile principle. To do good to those who, who hate you is living in the second mile. The whole genius of the new covenant of grace is the second mile principle. The second, mile, the second miler, he delights in pleasing God. No matter what the situation calls for, it is met joyfully. The concern is not, what must I do to get by? The concern is, what can I do for God? You know we are getting into the groove of our Christian life when our sense of joy in serving God overflows our sense of duty. No longer do we always ask, do I have to? Rather we would say, but I want to do it. 
You know, if you think about it, to walk in the second mile is not really about walking, is it? The second mile is about identity. The second mile is about who we are and who we are called to be. The second mile is about who walks with us and who shapes us into the, into the people that God creates us to be. To walk in the second mile means that we live deeply into the knowledge that we belong, that we are beloved, and that we are called. Yes, friends, we are called. We are, not call, we are called not to less, but to more. We are called not to scarcity, but to abundance. We are called not to fear, but to hope. Friends, there is such a tremendous power in the second mile principle. First of all, it will change your attitude. The first mile, friends, is a slave mile. It's, it's a must-do mile. But the extra mile, the second mile, is a smile mile. Why? Because we do it out of a gappy love. We do it out of love for our King and our Saviour. Also, the extra mile will make us successful. The reason some believers, friends, are not successful in their commitments, in their devotions and in their ministries is because they are first milers. If we want to succeed in ministry today, we need to go some. And then we need to go some more. And then we need to go some more. The extra mile is also the key to better relationships. To go the extra mile, friends, is contrary to what the world teaches. The world teaches that life is all about me. The extra mile is not about you. The extra mile, it will open doors that you never thought would be ever be opened. Jesus went the extra mile when he paid our penalty and died for our sins, although he did not deserve it. He went the extra mile for each and every one of us here today. This morning, Jesus is asking us, can you do the same for others? To go that extra mile out of love. This morning, Jesus is asking us to use that great power that he has entrusted us with to go and help others and go that extra mile out of love. This morning, Jesus is asking us to, to walk in the authority that he has given us to go and help others and to go that extra mile out of love. I don't know whether the band would like to come back. Our church, friends, is preparing for the future. We're getting ready to grow, both spiritually and numerically, praise God. Today, we are becoming more ambitious. We are improving the standard. We are raising the bar. We are 
up in the ante. We are going that extra mile. Why? Because we want to see God moving here at PCF. We want to see miracles happen here at PCF. We want to see souls saved here at PCF. Literally, literally plundering the gates of hell. Have a good look round you this morning. You will see a, a new coffee bar. Brilliant. I love it. Well done, Ian. If he's here, I don't know if he's here or not. Well done, all the other people who's helped with it as well. New chairs and tables. Tall tables with cakes on at the moment. I can see them. <laughs> You'll see new carpets. You will see a new wall. Well, it's not new, but it's newish. Well, yeah, it's new. You will see a new style of seating all the way round. No expense has been spared. It's not been done to make us feel better. It's not been done to make us look good. It's not been done for us to compare with other churches. No. It's been done for us to live and to work in that second mile. It's been done for us to step up and to step out in all of our ministries. It's been done so that we can promote excellence. That we can excel in worship, in prayer, in praise, in ministry, in, in, in the word. So this morning, I'm asking you, are you available? Please don't be a first miler. Don't be that person that just does enough. Don't be that person who takes on things half-heartedly. Don't be that person who, who becomes a bit lukewarm, a bit, a bit uninterested, a bit indifferent. Do you know why? I'll tell you why. Become a second miler and you will influence others. Guaranteed. Become a second miler and you will change your environment. Guaranteed. Come with us into that second mile and I tell you what, friends, watch God move. And remember, remember, we do wonderful things when we are in agape love. God bless you all.